All right, so we're going to get back to David uh, today, and we're still at Ziklag with him. We saw last week how after all of these years of wandering in the wilderness, he reached his lowest moment when for a brief moment he thought, I'm going to find refuge among the Philistines. I'm going to go hide out in enemy country. Not one of his best decisions. He got rejected there. The Philistines rejected him while he was offering himself to fight with the Philistines. The Amalekites came, stole everything from his camp, took all their wives, their kids, and all their stuff, and ran off with it. And to make matters worse, when he and his men got back, now remember, this is 600 men, many of whom were David's mighty men. Legendary. There's Isla. Sorry, I didn't see you. Why didn't you wave at me or something? Isla, you look younger today. It's, I mean, you have this eternal youth countenance anyway, but thanks for letting us serve you yesterday like that. Now, what was I saying? <laughs> He gets back and these men are angry at him and he hears this buzz going around the camp. The men are talking about stoning him. These are some bad dudes. One of them took out 8,000 with his spear. Not a company you want to mess with. And if David ever felt alone, he felt alone now yet again. All of his stuff taken, his men turned on him. And here is a turning point in history all the time and every time. When everything seems to fall apart, when everything gets empty, there is one kind of person that will always turn the tide. And that's the one who does as David did. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord. So while everyone else was cowering in fear, everyone else was falling apart all around him, David knew where to turn. And as he went toward the Lord, he, um, he found strength. When, when we run out of strength, that's where God's strength begins to pick up. And I want to urge you, when you find yourself, I'm not saying if you find yourself, if we are living a life, and I'll, I'll say this again, I think this is a really important kind of, it's like a motto every believer ought to have, that in our lives, if we are doing things that never require God's help, we have yet to step into the will of God for our lives. In other words, if we can live our whole life, and the, the question that I do as a heart check for myself and I offer to you as a heart check, if Jesus was completely eradicated out of your life tomorrow, what would be different if the answer is probably nothing that I would suggest step into the river and step into the life of the spirit because you haven't yet done that. If you could do life without Jesus, then it's not the Jesus life yet. Is that okay? Smile. You look mad at me. That's the, I say these things because I love you and because God said it to me first. It's an exciting life to step into, but it's not for the faint of heart unless the faint of heart know, I know where to find strength right now because I'm out. I'm exhausted. It's said of these men when they came back that they wept so hard that they had no strength left. So these are mighty men who are weary of heart. They're completely worn out. And in the middle of that, one man is about to turn the tide because he knew how to find new strength in the Lord his God. So now David said to Abiathar, we're in uh, 1 Samuel 30, this is verse 7 then, David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. Ephod was a garment worn by the priest, and inside of that were the Urim and Thummim. Those were two things that God gave to the priest so that they could discern the word of the Lord. So you have prophets who speak the word of the Lord, but the high priest also had access to ask God, should I do this or not? And God would answer faithfully every time, yes, you should do that. No, you should not do that. So David knew enough. This is one of the things that makes David 
a great ancestor to Jesus in that he fulfilled the role of king and the role of priest all in one package. In the old covenant, those two offices were separate from each other. In Christ, they're brought back together. David was the Old Testament king doing the New Testament thing, which is why Jesus said, I'm going to sit on the throne of David when I come into the earth, the son of God incarnate. Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? I'm going to just stop there for a second. He asked God the question. Now, for most of us, we're looking at this going, Dude, you just lost your family and all of your stuff. This is not a time for praying. This is a time for action. Action, dude, why do you even ask? Of course God wants you to have your family back. Of course God wants you to go into the enemy's camp and get back what he stole from you. There's a good 90s, 80s. When's that from, Steve? 80s, 90s, 80s? It was BC for me. I was not in Christ. I made fun of y'all for singing those songs back in that day. Of course God wants you to go. Maybe he does. And maybe it's not the right time. Or maybe it's not the right way. Carrying God's heart, as David did, he had a man after God's own heart or a man who carried God's own heart, means we don't assume that we know the will of God in every situation. We know how to inquire of the Lord in all circumstances. And the good news is we don't need some high priest to bring us a garment that has Urim and Thummim in it because we have Christ in us, the source of all wisdom. We have an unfair advantage in life. We have on the inside of us access to the God who knows, to the only one who can predict the future. Because I remember, we're in this mess right now with David because David took matters into his own hands. Remember for a moment, David despaired after sparing Saul's life for the second time. He said, one day Saul's going to catch up with me and he's going to kill me. And so I am not gonna, I'm not going to hang out here and wait for that to happen. I'm going to go hide in the Philistine, which was a crazy idea, but he took matters into his own hands. That's how he got into this mess. What David's going to get out of this mess, not by taking matters into his own hands and presuming to know how God's going to operate. How many of you know that God, yes, th- did God want David to have all of his stuff back? That's not a rhetorical total question. Yeah, of course he did. Does God want you and me to have everything back that the enemy, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, does he want us to have it all back? Of course he does. The question is not whether we're going to get it back. The question is how and when are we going to get it all back? What's God's strategy for this thing? If you read through the scriptures, even just a cursory reading, you'll know that God does not ever do things the way that we would do them. Never. The, the Moabites are running over the land. And so I'm going to raise up uh, Gideon to, to, to go and get the stuff back and chase the enemies out of the land. How are we going to do it? Well, we'll go raise up a big army. We're going to go drive them back out of the land, right? No, we're not. You got 36,000. That's too many. We're going to reduce it to 3,000. Oh, that's still too many. No, we're going to reduce it to 300. Okay, 300 against an army we can't even count. Then what are we going to do? Well, I want you to get your pottery, and I want you to get some torches, and I want you to get the band. And, and then you go go out. That's what he told them to do. That is not how we would have done it. Did God want the Moabites out of the land? Of course he did. That was their promised land. The point is that when we presume to know what God's strategy is and what God's plan is for his promises, we're taking matters into our own hand, even about things that we know that God wants for us. 
Do you know, even the scriptures can't substitute for seeking his face. I want to tell you that this book is not God's way of reducing all of who he is and all of what he can and desires to do into a bunch of words that we could say, now Now we have the full revelation of God. We don't need him anymore because he revealed everything there is to know in this book. The, the Godhead is not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Book. The Godhead involves Holy Spirit, which is how we search the heart of God, which is how we know God's wisdom. And so David strengthened himself in the Lord so he could get up off of his face from crying so hard all day and say, okay, God, what should we do now? I want to urge you, if you are one like me, there's public confessions of a true get-or-done person, and you're inclined to take matters into your own hands, let's grab David's heart for a minute. Let's grab David's heart for the rest of our lives and say, you know what? I think I know how I'm supposed to go about this, but maybe I'll ask God first before I go diving in face first and take matters into my own hands. And then, now I got another mess that God has to clean up with and for me. Anybody else ever do that? Don't you look at me like that. Nod your heads, every one of you who's ever done anything, right? So we want to say, God, what is it that you're doing? Inquiring of the Lord is the first step. After we've picked ourselves up and we're no longer in despair, we're not crying, we're not, oh, woe is me, it's hopeless, it's, I'm helpless in this. Now we don't just go run off and do something. This is somebody, you know that, that saying, um, don't just stand there, do something. Sometimes you have to hear that, right? Most of the time, what we actually need to hear is don't just do something, stand still for a minute and see the salvation of the Lord. There's an ocean, there's a sea in front of you and an army behind you. Now what are you going to do? Panic, scream, yell, go back and forth and yell at the guy who brought you here, Moses, and all that, right? And in the middle of that one man, Moses, in the middle of, an, uh, of a sea of a million people who are in total panic, turns to the Lord and says, so uh, what are we going to do? God told him what to do. Stick that rod that I gave you out over the water and you'll see. He told the people, hold still for a, quiet, for a minute. You're going to see the salvation of the Lord. And he said to them, you're going to hold your peace. In other words, shut up for a minute and just watch what God's about to do. Sometimes we need to say that to our soul. You know, you can talk to your soul, right? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, Psalm 103. You can talk to your soul. Sometimes what you need to tell your soul is shut up for a minute. Maybe shut up for an hour. Maybe shut up for a long time. Because you've been making me feel like I'm a ship tossed in a storm and I'm totally helpless. And here's God standing there going, man, as soon as you hold still long enough, I got a word for you. And in that word, you're going to know exactly what to do. And it's going to be fun getting that stuff back. So David inquired and God spoke to him and he said, all right, go and get the stuff back. You're going to win. And, and so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, we're in verse nine now, and they came to the brook Besor where those left behind remain. Now what's this all about? We got some there. Stay. This is the original left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remained behind. There are 200. A third of David's men were so exhausted that they couldn't even carry on past the brook right outside the city where they were living, Ziklag. They were that exhausted. David, carrying God's heart, 
was able to inspire. He probably gave them the Braveheart speech. Come on, we're going to go back. Okay, I'm not doing it today. He, he did the Braveheart speech. He's going, come on, we can get our stuff back. God's with us. He spoke to me. We're going to go. We're going to have everything back. 400 of them were, yeah, let's go. 200 of them stayed behind. Carrying God's heart enables us to seek and then receive new strength even when we've become completely exhausted. Even young men grow weary, but they that wait upon the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. Waiting on the Lord is not the same thing as standing still and doing nothing. There's an intentionality to it. Despair is when, like these 200 men, despair is when we say, I just can't carry on. I'm, I'm quitting. This is where I stop in my journey. I'm going to hang out by the brook Bissor, and uh, that's about all I got. Yeah, I know the enemy took everything from me that God gave me, but I'm just, I'm worn out. And so I'm just going to hang out here. That is not waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, literally the Hebrew word, they that wait upon the Lord, it means to get woven in with something. That's the picture of that word. Waiting on the Lord means, God, weave my heart into yours again because I feel disconnected from you right now. This circumstance I'm in, this trial I'm facing right now, I feel like you're a million miles away, but I know you're not. I know that you're not, but my soul feels like it. So convince my soul of the truth because my heart's lying to me right now. I know that you would never leave me. I know that you would never forsake me. So I'm going to wait on you. And while I'm waiting on you, I'm going to fix my eyes on you, as David did. I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord my God. Maybe I'm going to write a song or two while I'm here. Remember last week, pour your heart out. Get all that rusty junk out of the pipe first so that living water can begin to flow, which, by the way, is the meaning of Beor, this brook that they're at. It means a bubbling brook. It means a gushing water. It means a cleansing water. It means stuff that just flows and washes everything away. So 200 men stopped just a few feet shore, short, a few on the shore, a few feet short of getting washed completely clean of all that anxiety, fear, and depression, that spirit of despair that, that came over them. And, and they just missed their garment of praise. It was on the other side of that. 400 went over with David, and, um, and, and they did. So sometimes God's comfort to us because David was exhausted too, you remember. Before all this happened, before he sought the Lord, encouraged himself in the Lord, inquired of the Lord, before all of that, David was one who wept until he had no strength left. Do you know, this is the meaning of have a good cry, by the way. How many of you have ever lost something that you loved so that you cried until you had no more tears left? How many of you have experienced that in life? All of us will at some point. Some of us haven't experienced it yet because you haven't endured a tragedy like that. But some haven't experienced that yet because you don't let you cry till you have no tears left. Let yourself cry. You, you stop the tears. You bottle them up. You say, this is it. I've got to be strong right now. This doesn't feel like strength right now. This doesn't feel like comfort right now. When you're, you ever have that, like that hard cry, you know how emotionally exhausted you feel at the end of it? Like you could just sleep for a day after you've wept until you have no tears left. That's called grieving, and that's what we call good grief. That wasn't Charlie Brown that came up with that. Good grief means I'm pouring all of that out right now until i got nothing left, because I'm going to find at the end of that, and I have no strength left to even cry anymore about it. Oh, man, the Lord's going to fill me with new strength. 
He's going to renew my youth like the eagle. I'm going to mount up. I'm going to fly again. Only this time it's going to be on wings like an eagle with the Lord carrying me in that thing. Sometimes God's comfort just comes like an arm wrapped around, and he for sure, he knows how to do that. God's the best comforter there ever has been. And you don't even need a person to say anything or even be there with you. Sometimes God just doesn't wrap his arms around, and you feel it in your deepest part of you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And you feel it in there. But then there are other times where God's comfort comes, and he says, now get up and fight. Now get up and fight. Okay, you saw my face. You asked me what to do. I'm telling you right now, get up and fight for what God taken from you. God's comfort in a moment of despair sometimes is to give us the grace so that we can get up and fight. So that we can say, enough's enough. I'm not sitting around any longer. I'm not staying in this place. I'm going to go and get back what I got. This is what happened with Jacob. Remember Jacob when he was on his way back into the promised land? And he had angry Esau waiting for him. And what he thought after 21 years of being away was that Esau still had a grudge and big hairy Esau was going to rip his head off. He was like that big, doofy, older brother, you know. I mean, he was only a few seconds older, but, you know, he's like big, hairy, scary Esau. And Jacob thought, he's going to kill me. He's going to rip my head off when I see him again. So there's Jacob, and he's ready to give away everything that God gave him in all those 21 years just so Esau won't kill him. And while he's there resting, he's all by himself. Everybody else gone over the brook, and there he is. And an angel jumps him in the dark. And he wrestles all night. I mean, what a mensch anyway. He wrestles with this angel all night long. And it was like God was saying to him, I've blessed you these 21 years. Why are you giving it all away? Get up and fight. Stop giving away all of what I've given to you. I want you right now to remember who you are. You're going to prevail with me. That then his new name that day meant prince with God or he who prevails with God. Why? Because Jacob got up and fought for what God wanted to give him. And that's what God said to David. I want you to get up and fight. So God doesn't always say that to us. And that's why we got to inquire of the Lord. God does not always speak to us to take action. Sometimes for many of us, and I'm one of these, this is my personality type, and I know a lot of you are the same way. Sometimes what's harder to hear is stand still for a minute. Don't do anything just now. Don't do anything rash. I'm not going to be there. If you go out and fight right now, I'm not going to be there. You're going to go get your butt whooped if you go out and fight right now because it's not the right time yet. Sometimes what we need to hear is stand still and watch what God's going to do. Sometimes what God's saying is, the two of us together, I want you right now to have the joy of doing something so that you can get back what the enemy took out of your life. So it says in verse 16 then, they got this um, Egyptian guy to show him where the camp was. And in verse 16, they brought him down to where the Amalekites were. And behold, the Amalekites were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah, including David's stuff from Ziklag. And David slaughtered them from the twilight until evening of the next day. That's a long butt whooping right there. And not a man of them escaped except 400 of them rode away on camels. That's such a random detail. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing. 
that's a word for, I, I just, as soon as I read that, that's a word for somebody or several somebodies. You think it's gone for good and you think that as far as what you understand about that thing that got taken from you is that that's it, it's gone forever, it can't be recovered. The Lord's preserving it for you in a way that you don't even understand yet. The Lord's preserving the thing that you lost in a way that you can't even imagine. This is the kind of God that he is. You know, uh, Joel said uh, in a promise to Israel after they were going to be ravaged by enemies, he said, and I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Not the things that the locusts have eaten. I'm going to restore to you all of the years. In other words, you think, how many of you came to Christ at an older age and you said, all those wasted years, all those years of my life that I spent in sin, that I spent in dead religion, whatever it was. Oh, I wish I could have all those years back and do it all over again. I said that until I read that passage in Joel. I said, oh, you can restore years? Yeah, the God who's outside the realm of time is able even to restore years. That the things that we thought got stolen from us, it could be 10, 20, 40, 50 years of life that God's able to restore it and make it as if we didn't even mess up in the first place. It's going to be, he's able to look back at our history and say, I was there and I was there and I was there and I was there and I was making all things work together for your good even before you knew me, even when you hated me and made fun of me and my people, I can give it all back to you as if you served me your entire life. This is the unfair grace of God. He is unfair. This is why he, you know, he told, Jesus told parables to the Israelites to warn them. The Gentiles are coming. And even though they've been serving pagan gods for all of these centuries, I'm going to treat them the same as I'm going to treat you who've been carrying me in my word and suffering for it all along. So we got these parables, right? The parable of the workers in the vineyard. Some got hired first thing in the morning. Some got hired in the middle of the day. Some got hired at the end of the day. And they're all lined up. The ones who got hired at the end of the day get their pay. And it's the amount that was promised to the ones who got hired at sunrise. And the ones who got hired at sunrise are watching. I'm paraphrasing, of course. They're watching and go, oh, man, we're going to get, man, we're going to get blessed. He's going to give us like three times as much. These clowns who showed up for the last and the 11th hour of the day, literally, they're getting paid what we got promised. We're going to get so much more. They get up to the front of the line. They get the same pay as the dudes who showed up at the end of the day. And all of you work with your hands. And all of you sweat for, for 11 hours. They work full 12-hour days in that time. Man, you work for 11 hours. You work for 12 hours. These guys work for one. You've been sweating since 6 a.m. and they get paid the same as you. That is not fair. Man, you, you get like all kinds of trouble for doing that these days. The wage laws and all that. You cannot do that to people. But, and they said, this isn't right. They're getting the same amount as us and we worked all day long. He says, my money. I can do whatever I want with it. That was a total power phrase. But that's what the grace of God is like. We're going to have to get used to that, guys. We're going to have to get used to people that we've known for our entire life. And they come in and they finally turn their heart toward God. They come alive to God. And then all of a sudden they're blessed as if they've been serving God for as long as we have. As long as you have. I can't, I'm not yet part of we. I'm, all, I'm, I'm still only in Christ. Uh, well, I guess more than half of my life now. But we've got to get used to how God's grace, he is, he is just, well, he's gracious. He doesn't count the way that we count is to keep a record as if all of those years, well, you know, you're going to have to make up for all those years you were messing around. You know what? Nope. He gets saved. 
And then the next day you could be out there preaching. The next day you're out there and you bless the next day. All of that. If we're not careful, we get that spirit of the older brother in the prodigal son story. It's like, I've been serving you all these years. And just like that, this guy comes back and now we're throwing a party for him. What about me? What's in this for me? That's a reflection of something in our spirit that David did not carry. So verse 19, nothing was missing, small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they taken for themselves. David brought it all back, it says. So David captured all the sheep and the cattle with the people that drove ahead and all the other livestock. And they began to say, all the people said, this is David's spoil. And I want to pause here for a second because you remember the last time people began to sing songs of David's praise and gave David credit for all the things he was doing. Saul is slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. It was probably more interesting the way they sang it back then. They're singing these songs. What happened next to David? They went south from there. Spears are flying. He's running for his life. Everybody's turning against him. And now he's been hunted for a decade in the wilderness. After that song came, David's brothers accused him of being conceited. That was the word they used. When he came to show up to kill Goliath, David's brothers looked, oh, you conceited little brat. We know you're here for, you know, whatever, just to show off. Maybe there was some of that in David. We see a little bit. We've seen some in his wilderness. And so here's David hearing people singing his songs again. This time he said, whoa, 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 stop the press. I ain't falling prey to that again. David had learned something in these years, that the only thing that's harder to handle than the rejection of men might be the praises of men. I have a great book on my shelf written by Bob Sorge. All of you need to read it if you haven't already. It's called Dealing with the Rejection and Praises of Men. They're the two things that can destroy anyone called to any kind of leadership, which just by way of reminder, how many of you are called to leadership? Hey, I got all the hands up that time. At least all the people who ever participate in the raising of hands. <laughs> Everyone, we are the head, not the tail. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. The lion of the tribe of Judah lives on the inside. You're called to leadership, whether you ever have an office of authority or not. Every one of us is called to lead this nation, lead this world into the kingdom of heaven. So guard your heart because when people start singing praises, that's when the worst thing of all begins to enter in and that's pride. That is more destructive. Pride comes before a fall. It's amazing. It's not opposition. It's not when the enemy comes and steals, kills, destroys. It's not when people do all kinds of things against us. That's not what comes before a fall. Pride is what comes before a fall. The moment we begin to think something of ourselves, the moment we thank God, oh, look, they're singing my songs again. It's a good new day. Finally, we overcame this wilderness. David's like, Err! cut that song right out. Here's what David said in response to that. What verse are we up to? 21. So David, <laughs> David came back then to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow him, who had been left at the brook Besor. They went out to meet David and meet the people who were with him. David approached the people and greeted them. David approached the people and greeted them. These are now David, everybody's singing. This is David's spoil. Look at what David did. David greets the 200 who left them when they needed them most. Just, just picture this 200 right here. You ever get into a tight spot? when you need your friends the most, when you need the people that you always depended on the most, and they're not there for you. Anybody experience that? 
You get the people that you normally could count on. They're just not there when you, you needed them. How many of you know bitterness is right knocking at the door in a moment like that? Where were you when I needed you? Why weren't you there for me when everything fell apart? Why didn't you meet my need when I needed you the most? We say that to people, but ultimately we got to be careful that we don't say that to God. How could you leave me when I needed you the most? That's these 200 people. And the first thing David wants to do when he gets back, having this great victory, he's got his 400 with him, all the wives, kids, and all their stuff, and he goes over and he greets them. Now, all the wicked and worthless men, why don't you tell us how you really feel, writer of 1 Samuel? All the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, hey, they didn't go with us, so we're not going to give them any of the spoil that we recovered. Well, they can have their wives and kids back, and then they could go but they can't have any of the stuff. We're taking their stuff as a finder's fee because we did the work. They stayed here. We did the work. We risked our lives to go and get all this stuff back, and they stayed back like a bunch of cowards. We're not sharing any of the stuff. David rose up and he said, you will not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. What the Lord has given us, who has kept us, and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. Ain't nobody going to listen to you anyway. That's paraphrased too in verse 24. For as the share is with, with the one who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage they'll share alike. So here's David with these 200. You go, guys, guys, come on, knock it off. Cowards? No. They were just guarding the baggage, right? Yeah. Somebody had to watch our stuff. I mean, what we had left anyway. Somebody got to stay with the baggage. These 200, they were staying with the baggage. Somebody's got to do it. He's so gracious to them. And so it's been from this day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. David said, away. Remember, we're looking at David for so long because Jesus said, or the angel said of Jesus, he sit on the throne of his father, David. David made a way for everybody to follow as an example. If Jesus didn't get a chance to do it in his life, he could go back and look at how David did it, and it's just like how Jesus would have done it. Because David said, it doesn't matter if you didn't find the strength. You messed up. Yeah, you should not have stayed behind. The word of the Lord was, go to the enemy's camp, get back everything that stole. You were worn out, you were weary of heart, and you fainted. But I'm not going to hold that against you for the rest of your life, and I'm not going to withhold from you the grace and the blessing of God, just because you didn't join us in getting that back. You know, a symptom of a heart that's been infected by pride is when we begin to think that we can judge those whose faith went weak in times of life's hardships. This is an area we have got to be so careful about. This is, uh, uh, I think, especially in the American mindset and our way, we are a nation made up of people who, by the work of our own hands, build things. Merck and May, right? We, we are going to work hard. We have this Protestant work ethic, which is a great blessing. Don't get me wrong. It is important that we do things with our own hands. It's important that we serve the Lord and honor Him with our worship and what we build and what we make with our own hands. But if that produces in us a judgment toward those who, for whatever reason, this is where our judgment of the poor comes in. 
when we judge people who go through the cycle of poverty and they're they're always going from place to place and it just seems like they can never get on top. And I've, I've heard the words come out of mouths of people I love of judgment toward them. Well, if they would just get a job, if they would just, you know, overcome this thing, well, you don't know where they grew up. We don't know what the, you know, the whole walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you'd have known the life some of my friends that went to the boys club with me growing up was like, they're living in a house where there's a mom who's out working 12 hours a day. They're unparented, raised in the streets, which is like being raised by wolves with an abusive alcoholic father who shows up sometimes just to take stuff from the house, maybe throw mom around a little bit or have sex with her. I mean, this is their life. They grew up under, that was their training for how to live life was in a place like that. And then they grow up and we judge them because they don't know what it means to hold a job, to have the kind of character that it takes to show up for work every day and act with integrity. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that we got to get back to a place of killing, put our pride on the shelf and thank God for the fact that whatever it was that God did, whether growing up in the kind of family that instilled those values or whoever in our life God sent to help us have those values, that we don't hold those in judgment who struggle to get out from that cycle of poverty. I've seen people, uh, I've got friends, I mean, I have a couple of friends that are dead now from drug activity. I have friends that, you know, I don't even know what happened to them. They were heading on a dangerous road when we lost contact with each other. There, there is all kinds of ways that lives can be destroyed out there. Except for the grace of God, there we all go. We all go. So while we, yes, we do want to live in a world where everybody takes responsibility for their own call and destiny, where everybody pulls their part and carries their own load in life, let's repent of holding any judgment toward those who, for whatever reason, like these 200 who just grew so weary, they quit right on the river, right when they were supposed to go and get the stuff back. David said, no, 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 we're going to be gracious to them. Understand how they feel. David understood as well as anybody else. This is the thing I love about David and the thing I love about Jesus. David didn't say, hey, look, I knew how to encourage myself in the Lord. I don't know what your problem was. He could have gotten up to those 400 and said, dude, you guys were ready to stone me a few hours ago. Remember? Because you were so angry. He could have gone off on them. He was the only one that knew. Let's ask God what to do right now. Let's find strength in the Lord. So these 400, they would have been the same as those two. They received grace from David and they weren't ready to extend grace to these other 200. David rebuked them soundly and said, no, 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 that's not how it's going to be in this kingdom. This is going to be a kingdom built on the grace of God. This is not going to be a kingdom built on pride and judgment. If we believe that we are better than or hold some kind of judgment toward those who can't overcome the things that we have overcome, then we've forgotten something really important. We have forgotten that every good and perfect gift is a thing from God. Everything. The, the, the way to know that we forgot that it's he who gives us strength to produce wealth, that it's he who gave us whatever gift we have that, was, that enabled us, it's he who gave us the, the family or the culture or the community, whatever it was that helped us build a platform to build our life upon. If, the, the proof that we've forgotten that is that we look down on those who haven't yet achieved their potential in life. Every good thing we have is a gift from God. All of the grace of God, everything that we have, as soon as we begin to think that my life has been built on my own efforts, I'm the one, I built this thing. 
my life. I've done it. I could have done it without God. That is the pride that comes right before a massive fall. So here's this, Jesus told this parable. It's the most harrowing of all of Jesus' parables, I think. Because at the end of it, to the one who was the subject of the parable, the unmerciful servant, he said, hand him over to the tormentors. This is Jesus talking about somebody who'd received forgiveness, but didn't extend the same grace to others. He said, he summoned this guy back after he found out that he'd received mercy and wasn't extending mercy. He got grace, but didn't pour out grace. He said to him, you wicked slave. Remember, wicked and worthless men. That's what the Bible describes those 400 or some of the 400 who said, they're not getting back any of their stuff. We're keeping their stuff because we went and got it for them. Wicked and worthless. And Jesus said, you wicked slave. I don't know, sometimes, you know, there's this temptation as a love, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be anyway, a man of love and a man of grace and a man of trying to represent the good shepherd where you almost want to dumb down the Bible's language. But this is Jesus who said this about those who receive mercy and forgiveness, but don't extend it. You wicked slave. I forgave you. Dude, you had a debt you could have never repaid if you lived 10 lifetimes at your present salary. I forgave you of that. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave the same way that I had mercy on you? Carrying God's heart means we understand we've received such mercy, such grace. We've received so much of the goodness of God. How could we not extend that? I have freely received of the grace of God. We have freely drank from rivers of life. How could we not freely give that to all who come our way? Whether they deserve it or not. And it's the undeserving ones that are the hardest, right? The ones that we've judged to be undeserving of it. Hey, the Bible says, if a man doesn't work, then he shall not eat. And that's true. I'm not arguing with that. It's in the Bible. The Bible's always right. I'm always wrong if we disagree on something. And, what, and all that means in the context is you don't get to ride for free for life on the good hard work of others. But the reason why they even had a system set up where the poor were being fed, where widows were being cared for, where cripples were being comforted and cared for was because sometimes people are actually in such a pit that they can't get out of it. They need someone else to carry that. It's a fiction to believe that because God used us to accomplish a great kingdom victory that we could have done it without him. In the end, all of us have got to confess Jesus was right. When he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's nothing we can do without the grace of God. There might be a, we might for a little while. How many of you have experienced where you've severed yourself from like your daily connection with the Lord and it seems like life is still going okay? It's still riding on, on some goodness. You know, they're wealthy. They're families that have accumulated wealth over generations, right? And so you can have a generation come who are these trust fund kids who don't do anything productive. They live off the wealth of the family. And over the course of time, those families that once were wealthy, the wealth may carry a generation or two later, but eventually that wealth is completely gone. So it is with liberty in America. I'll say it this way. In our nation right now, we have a vast accumulation of the wealth of freedom in our nation. It was bought for by the blood of many a generation in times past. 
But if we don't treasure it, if we're not careful, we could be under the illusion that it's never going to go away. And then find out all of a sudden that bank account's dried up and it's no longer because we've been riding off of someone else's work. That all is true. But if any of us ever gets the notion that we accomplished anything of meaning with our lives apart from the grace of God, well, then we've got pride at work in our hearts. And I urge you, urge us, don't let it grow. Don't let it sit there. Don't let that belief that apart from God, we can do anything develop. Because if we believe that our salvation or any of the benefits of it are the result of anything other than the grace of God, pride has gained a foothold in our heart. And how one symptom, one way of knowing that pride has entered our heart is when we judge those who don't have the same level of faith, who don't move forward in God the same way that we do, who don't have this victorious, forward-moving mindset. If we have judgment toward those who don't do it, I'm, I'm telling you, pride has found a foothold. And if that foothold remains, that's where strongholds get built. It's always a foothold first, and then it becomes a stronghold if we let it remain. So I urge you to repent. When that kind of a thought comes to mind, just like David, he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not David's spoils. This isn't David's victory. The Lord brought this stuff back for us. Because the truth for all of us is Romans says in Romans 5 verse 6, while we were still helpless, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not a one of us. Do you know, not even the moment that we prayed and, and, and said, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. We can't even take credit for that. We were completely helpless. How many of you believe, like the Scripture says, that we were dead in our trespasses? So maybe a series in Romans might. Yeah, so. We were dead in our trespasses. We had absolutely nothing. <laughs> I used to sing this song when I was a teenager. I found the Lord. I found the Lord and won't share with you. I found the Lord. I didn't find nothing. I was running as far and fast as I could away from God. He found me. And I'm not alone in that. He found every last one of us. It had nothing to do with us. Hey, man, I came and I concluded I did my logical search of God, and, and now I'm a believer. I'm taking credit for something I had nothing to do with. You can't get any more helpless than being dead. That's as helpless as helpless gets. Dead. I couldn't do a thing, even if with my mind or with maybe part of my heart, I had this desire for God. Maybe. <laughs> The truth is, dead in trespasses and at the right time. What was the right time? When we needed him most. Yahweh came in and said, I will be the Lord your salvation. I will be the one who rescues you when you don't even know you need to be rescued. You're so caught up. A friend of mine described the way, you know, uh, we were chained by sin. We were slaves to sin. We were shackled by things. And my friend said it so well as a powerful intercessor in Europe. Uh, Romania, and he said, it's like silken chains is how the enemy does it, where we're bound up and they feel so good and we have somewhat of a range of motion. And we only know that we're bound when we try to step into something of God and we realize something's holding me back. I can't go any further, but they felt so soft and silky all along. I didn't even know I was bound. That's what the chains of sin feel like. Can most people know if I'm in chains and they're going, this is bad. I don't want to be in this situation, but the enemy is so deceitful that we're in chains, we don't even know it. So at the right time, he died for the ungodly. How many of you used to be ungodly? 
<laughs> Good answer. Ephesians 2, 6, for by grace, by grace you've been saved through faith, right? We can't even take credit for the faith part of it. Oh yeah, I had faith to believe in God and you didn't. That's why you're still an unbeliever. Nope. <laughs> no. And that, not of yourselves, even faith was a gift of God. Again, if you're dead, you don't have much faith. There's just no, no faith to be found. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No, boasting means I'm taking credit for this. Not a one of us, if part of our thought about our salvation is, I did something right and that's why I'm in, we got it all wrong. We completely misunderstood how this thing works. The grace of God was such that where our sin abounded, grace abounded more, period. That's the only reason how we made it in. It wasn't because of anything that we did. Therefore, we look around and we see people who are helpless, people who are completely, you know, like these guys at the brook of Besor, and they're just so in despair that they can't take another step. There's no room for judgment. There's no room for judgment. The only way that there's room for judgment is if we're boasting in our own works. So we look at those. Why do you think that in the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know, Jesus wanted to boil down, here's what's going to be the distinguishing factor between my people and not my people. I was hungry, and they fed me. They didn't say, get a job. I was hungry, gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and they gave me something to drink. I was a prisoner, and they didn't say, lock him up and throw away the key for what he did. He deserves life 40 times over. What's up with giving somebody 20 life sentences anyway? God, man, that is a screwball system if I ever heard of one. I was in prison, and instead of saying, good, he got what he deserved, they remembered, oh yeah, grace, mercy, that's why I have eternal life right now. Let me extend some of that to you, because you're not irredeemable any more than I was. I was in prison, and what did they do? They came to me. I was a stranger. They invited me in. They didn't say, see those creepy people at the door? He ain't opening the door for that. That doesn't look safe. That's not safe. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a big part of the homeless networks over here. I'm going to have more to share about that next week. Um, and <laughs> we were doing this workshop and talking with pastors. Now, if you're from the inner city, every inner city church houses the homeless. It's just a thing. Why? Because they're sleeping on the porch. <laughs> so you either have to step over them and be that raging of a hypocrite or you got to learn how to deal with people that are scary looking, that are drug addicted, mentally ill, and whatever. And, and that's just life. But, you know, out where it's more rural and you're in a happy valley and you don't even see the homeless so much, it, it may be not. And we were talking about how there's a perception like, well, people are more dangerous today than they were in the first century. What? Dude, we got 911 today. They didn't have 911 back there. Some guy came to your door with a knife. That was it. And, and yet Jesus said, you know what's going to distinguish my people from the rest? Oh, when I was a stranger and I showed up, they invited me in. They trusted me more than they feared what that stranger might do in my house and what influence that stranger might have. And so some have entertained angels unawares as a result of that. Did I miss one? What else? Sheep and the goats. I went off there for a minute. I forgot. There's one more and I didn't say it. Come on. Come on, are you even paying attention? What are you? Come on. <laughs> I was naked and you gave me clothes. Not torn, 
ragged, moth-riddled clothes. You gave me the shirt off your back. Got a friend in Liberia, one of my favorite people on the planet, Michael Holder. And I remember we sent him a suit one time because he was the chaplain of the Liberian Senate, only to find out a week later that this street preacher who had no home and he was always poor, he was wearing it. Didn't fit, but he was wearing it because he gave him the best. And that's what he told us. Hey, what happened to that suit we gave you? I gave it to that preacher. I forget the guy's name now. Just he was one of those typical street preacher on fire for God will never shut up preaching until the day he dies. And he said, well, I gave it to him. Why'd you give him that suit to me? Because you don't give people your leftovers, he said. You give them your best. We give people our best. I was, uh, I was naked and you clothed. That's what we are. A gracious spirit understands that freely we have received and so we freely give. The question always comes down to, and this again, this is carrying the heart of God, is to acknowledge anything good that we have is not just because we did it. We may have co-labored with God like David did to get the stuff back. But in the end, if God didn't come through, if God didn't bless, if God didn't do something first, we would be in that place. We would be by the side of a road somewhere and we'd be like everyone else that we've judged. So can you stand on your feet with me for a moment? I want to just leave you with a question this week. I want to ask you to consider for a minute and look around. Who do you know who needs the help of a warrior like you, whose faith is strong to recover something that the enemy stole from him? Who do you know? Who is in your life right now? Because I can guarantee you, that, you know, our call is to go and bring good news. Our call is to go and preach the gospel to every living creature. Our call is to go and make disciples of all nations. That's our call. So God wouldn't give us a call and then not give us an opportunity to respond to that call. So who is in your life right now? Just ask the Lord to even show you. Maybe it's somebody, you know how we are. We tend to treat people more like scenery than human beings. There's probably somebody you see every day or every other day or once a week and you stop noticing. And when I lived in New York City, there were so many homeless everywhere. And when I lived in Boston, it was the same way. I stopped noticing it for a, in part because it was so painful. It was so painful to see there was this overwhelming need. And so I had to, it was like I tuned it out to protect my heart from the pain of it all. Well, that's not God. So who is it? Who is in your life right now? then he's a warrior like you. You're strong in the Lord. You're, you're ready to go. You're ready to say, okay, God, I, I have your heart. I have uh, the lion who roars on the inside of me. And maybe I could help somebody get their stuff back too because I'm not going to judge them anymore. I'm going to help them. I'm going to be like the 400 who went, brought the stuff back for those 200 who were too weary and well-doing or too weary for whatever reason to move on. Father, I pray that you would reveal and give us opportunity to help those who have become helpless for whatever reason so that they might have opportunity to drink from the water that we drink from, that they might have opportunity to experience the grace of God that we have so gotten used to that we even take for granted sometimes. I pray that even this week and in the season, the days ahead, there'd be many opportunities for us to just extend your grace in its many forms to those who are in desperate need of it. Lord, I pray that you'd bring a swift conviction to our heart if judgment would ever enter in toward those that you've called us to minister to. 
that we would not look down on anyone, but we would rather look up as we get underneath them and lift them up into their divine destiny. Give us the same grace toward them that you extended to us. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I love you. Tell me the story of what happens then, all right? All right, I'll see you soon.